Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Anthropology, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Amir Lehman. Today we are talking to Rihan Ye about her book, Passing, Two Publics in a Mexican Border City, published in 2017 by the University of Chicago Press. Rihan is an Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, San Diego, and it is my great pleasure to speak to her now. Rihan, welcome. Hi, thank you, Amir. Perhaps you can start by telling us a bit about how you came to anthropology and this topic in particular. Okay. Um, So I came to anthropology very much by accident, by taking a random class in college because I said, oh, semiotic anthropology, what might that mean? I've never heard that word before. Um, So I took that in my second year, but I was already... um, working in Tijuana, I'd gone to Tijuana already a couple years before, a year and a half before or so. And after I finished high school, um, I got a position working as a volunteer. You know, my objective was just to go somewhere outside of the United States, leave the United States. And I found this orphanage that was willing to take me in. Um, and I'd spent a summer there. I spent the summer um, after my first year of college there as well. And I just kept going back because I got really sucked into um, the world that I sort of encountered and the lives of the young people, the kids. I wasn't, when I started, I wasn't the oldest um, of the young people. There were people living at the orphanage who was, there was one, there was one girl who was a year older than me when I got there. And so I was very much sort of in a peer group as for, as, as, as to age. And, and then, and then, you know, I started studying anthropology, and that sort of allowed me to sort of bring together these two aspects of my life that were developing. You know, the sort of American college experience and um, what I was seeing in the summers in, in in Tijuana at the orphanage. And and you know, out of that, I decided that I wanted to go into anthropology. Um, so I returned in you know, after my first year of graduate school. And that was my first time living in Tijuana outside of the orphanage. And I stayed, you know, with, through a friend uh, from the orphanage. Again, I stayed with uh, her and the woman that she had come to live with, who was Ines, who features um, very centrally in, in, in the book. And I spent the summer, you know, the first person that I ever interviewed was Ines's daughter, uh, Dara, who also appears in the book. And they really led me to see the city differently. That is, they sort of had a very gentle but insistent project to make me see the city, not as they assumed I had been led to see it through my experience at the orphanage. They were both familiar with with the orphanage. Um, so, So because of them, or really thanks to them and their efforts to get me to see things differently, I started, you know, I didn't, I didn't come to see the city as they wished me to exactly, but I started to think about it as formed in this dialogic tension or struggle between different visions of it. 
Um, and I eventually understood that those weren't just sort of different imaginaries of the city or something like that, but they were actually different social formations. Um, and, and, and I was sort of struggling with how to conceptualize that and how to approach that ethnographically when I stumbled into Michael Warner's um, work on publics. And that really sort of clicked for me. And this, this idea that he, he had that publics are social spaces projected from the circulation of discourse. So that gave me an ethnographic handle on what I've been thinking of very vaguely as in terms of sort of imaginaries of the city. But let me sort of proceed and think about how to study this in a, in a more concrete way. Wonderful. Um, so that actually leads us right into the introduction of the book. Um, you outline in the introduction how different constructions of collective subjectivities come into being in Tijuana. What makes this city in particular a compelling place for this kind of inquiry? So as I started reading about publics, I had to read also about the, the literature on the public sphere, which is a rather different kind of conversation. And I am, the way it started, it, it, it resonated a lot with what I with this um, split that I was just saying that I started finding in, in Tijuana. So what I found there was a certain clarity in the forms of weeness, in the forms of public communication through which people mark their belonging to larger groups. And that clarity, uh, I think, really has to do with the border. So to summarize the argument, um, the, the, these, this sort of dialogic tension or struggle that I was talking about a second ago, I came to see it as a split between what I call the clase media or the middle class and the pueblo or the people. And um, the book really deals with how these two sort of social imaginaries or publics face off and intertwine at the same time. So the the um, the the clase media or the middle class tends to formulate se- formulate itself in terms of we. That is, it actually articulates a first person plural, and that we ness, that explicit we ness, allows an orientation towards ideals of liberal publicity. So ideals of you know sort of value of open debate, for instance, or speaking straight and giving your opinions, having opinions, uh, reading the news, sort of a whole sort of formation of ideologies around forms of communication. And and this public, this Clasimeria public, imagines itself really in Tijuana as paradigmatically documented. On the other hand, I was finding um, what I call a hearsay public. And I found that in Tijuana, the pueblo or this idea of the people as a class marked, as a working class formation, um, I found that it projected itself through forms of communication marked as being in circulation amongst everyone. So these are these are communications marked by little tags like, for example, it's said that da-da-da-da-da, or everybody knows that ba-da-da-da-da-da, or and they say that da da da. So this public, in contrast, tends to imagine itself as paradigmatically undocumented. So it's just this this face off, I think, between clase media and pueblo in Mexico, and I think elsewhere, definitely elsewhere in Latin America and elsewhere in the world, is a very um, sort of common formation that comes out of the strength of liberal publicity as a tradition and its sort of hegemonic status in the world um, as a norm. Um, but the border really heightens the the split by lending the force of U.S. state recognition in terms of like are you are you are you authorized to cross or are you not authorized to cross, 
um, to those formations. So, so the I want to emphasize um, the novelty of the hearsay public. So to me, it's sort of it's sort of funny because I often hear the book. I often hear the book characterized as being about the middle class. And to me, it's really about both. It's really about both of these publics together um, and how they can't be understood separately from each other. And the hearsay public to me is sort of the bigger contribution intellectually because it is this mass social formation that is very common, um, that can be politically extremely important, but that tends to pass unnoticed as such. So it so so I feel like the idea of the hearsay public lets us talk about sociality at a at a really mass scale, um, but decentering you know the media, the corporate media, these questions of control of capitalism, of broadcast forms of media, um, that 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 brings up. So it's a, another form and a way of of coming together at a really mass and anonymous scale. So, so to get back to your um, your your original question, you know, why is this why is this why is Tijuana a compelling place for this um, for, for looking at the public sphere and the formation of publics? And this split is really classic, but it's run through by the border. It's deeply bound up in the border, and because this border, as a colonial inheritance, poses such a challenge to Mexican sovereignty and self-making. Um, it makes the shape of the public sphere here particularly revealing, I think, of both the limits of liberal publicity and the kinds of alternatives that can grow out of those limits. So there I'm thinking of the hearsay public, but also the sort of oddities of liberal publicity in this context, the way that it comes into question, even as people are very committed to upholding it. Mm. So it's not just a matter of liberal publicity sort of promises to include everyone. There's always this dream that it can sort of grow and everyone will be part of the we. Um, but then it falls short, you know, and it always falls short and falls short again and again. Um, so it has to be sort of challenged to ex to expand and challenged to become more more inclusive. What the border shows up is is the way that liberal publicity really relies on a model of self-hold that doesn't actually hold for anybody. Um, that is, there's someone in, <laughs> something in everyone that it doesn't include, and it really requires disavowal. It requires disavowal of relationality um, at many levels, and, and it becomes, it makes it necessary for that disavowal to be played out socially. So um, that gesture of othering that liberal models of publicity are sort of well known for, like, what are the limits of we? Um, that's 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 actually a necessary gesture, right? Because by othering that person, I also expunge from myself what's unacceptable, um, and that might be actually all too much like a the expunged other. So, you know, for instance, in the case of the United States, the border itself can be understood as a sort of massive mechanism of disavowal, right? Like disavowal of relationality with Mexico, disavowal of the U.S.'s colonial history in Mexico, disavowal of the U.S.'s own current ongoing dependence on Mexican labor, obviously, and, and disavowal of the fact that the U.S. is itself in a very large part Mexican. Um, what's interesting in Tijuana is that disavowal um, on the part of the United States gets repeated amongst Mexicans. Right. As the middle class or the clase media tries to sort of pass rejection off onto those below them socioeconomically. So this kind of binary recursive dynamic is something that I use the idea of the fetish to help draw out um, and I use this term to point to. 
what I consider a pervasive, necessary human dynamic that can manifest in different ways in different contexts. That is, the need to shore up a sense of unitary selfhood that is in reality always projected, always performed, always vulnerable, and to draw out the ambivalence that we might well feel towards whatever comes to fulfill that function. So, for example, take the U.S. visa. That's a really major example for me. Uh, it makes you feel like you possess the power to pass the border. But it also reminds you that you don't, right? That the U.S. state holds that power. The U.S. state has just like delegated a little bit of that power to you, you know, in the form of that little chunk of plastic. So the visa buttresses your eye, your sense of self, and at the same time, it hollows it out. And I find that ambivalence really generative. It means that people's positions and attitudes aren't fixed, but tend to slide around or even flip radically. And insofar as that ambivalence centers on the U.S. state, it really becomes a structuring principle of imperial power. It's more or less intense, takes different forms, depending on your distance from the U.S. state. So the two publics, the clase media and the pueblo, they nest within this unstable structure, which shapes the relationship between them as much as it shapes the relationship of each of them to state authority, both U.S. state authority and Mexican state authority. Wow. And then, wonderful. So then uh, you continue in the first chapter of the book with some ethnographic examples to show that. Um, it focuses upon the San Isidro port of entry between Tijuana and San Diego. Uh, can you explain to us what you saw on the day of May 1st, 2006, and how that was represented in the media? So May 1st, uh, 2006, that was a day that really crystallized for me um, the oddity and some of the contradictions of Tijuana's relationship with the U.S., which themselves crystallized, I think, some of the oddities and contradictions of Mexico's relationship with the U.S. broadly. So May Day um, in 2006 was an important day politically because of the immigrants' rights movement in the U.S. They had planned a major nationwide general strike, and the rallies that happened that day were actually um, are supposedly the biggest protests in the most cities that the United States had ever seen at that point. So since then, a May Day protests for immigrant rights have become a regular thing. It's a sort of that yearly occurrence, but that was the first time that that, that that was done. And there was a huge amount of uncertainty and sort of nervous anticipation leading up to the big day. So in San Diego, for example, I heard really intense concerns about, you know, just is this going to stoke anti-Mexican racist violence? Um, in Mexico, though, the, 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 the May Day, the May Day protests were billed also in very positively at a national level. So the national media really um, pushed this event uh, leading up to it, but it tended to frame the national public in Mexico as a kind of, kind of in the role of supportive bystanders. So instead of, instead of calling for, you know, a general strike, instead there was a call for a boycott. Um, and people were asked, you know, don't buy American on that one day to support, you know, quote unquote, our compatriots, in the United States. And so what happened at the border, of course, Tijuana is, you know, Tijuana is much closer to the United States. It's intimately involved in the United States in the way that, um, you know, 
is not the case for Mexico City, and the issue can't be held at quite such a distance. So there wasn't just a boycott. There were calls for a boycott. A lot of people were, there was a lot of talk about the boycott, um, but there was also an actual protest, and it was quite small. It wasn't a huge thing, and but it dramatized very revealingly the tensions that plague weenus or collective subjectivity um, at the border. So, so the protest and the, the reason it crystallized it was that even though there was all this support for, you know, in the media for, um, for the boycott, the protest ended up getting covered in a really negative light. And I interpret that as um, having to do with the role of the clase media or what I'm, what I, you know, the, the sort of aspect of it that, that this chapter is really highlighting is its character as a documented public, as a public that conceives of itself as having uh, this ambiguous right to cross into the United States, where it's obvious that that is not a right at all, right? And that's a sort of root contradiction, right? This sort of attachment to the right of passage where that is not a right that is going to build some kind of distinction from the undocumented public. So it's very important that um, you know, the protesters not themselves voice the undocumented public, that they not, in fact, address the United States when the sort of entire political thrust of the day was precisely to address, you know, U.S. society broadly and to address U.S. lawmakers. Um, there was the sense that uh, the protest in Tijuana was only supposed to address other Mexicans. And, and we were just sort of, everyone was there just to support those other people who remained, you know, in the United States, who remained very much in the third person. And when, and when, you know, when that sort of structure of voicing um, started being challenged or got messed up, then, you know, police violence was brought in and the organizers were arrested and the protest was shut down. Right. And so, so you just can see it sort of shows up this very ambivalent relationship um, also with Mexicans in the United States, right? There, once this group that you want to support and you want to show solidarity with, but they're not part of the national we. Um, so, so for those who, you know, felt sort of too much solidarity, actually voicing the we of the migrants, um, that was, you know, as as a uh, representative of the, of the state told me at, uh, at the at the May Day protest, that is not Tijuana, and they do not represent me. Uh, and indeed, they have no place sort of voicing this other imaginary of Mexico um, in public space here at the border. So um, the protest really showed up how the border splits, not just the U.S. and Mexico, but Mexican senses of collectivity and how it marginalizes the kind of weenus um, that would try to you know, traverse the border, that would try to try to include people on both sides of the border. Um, and it shows that gesture of marginalization, of exclusion for public discourse, from the right to even appear in public on the street at the port of entry. Um, it shows that gesture as bound up in the documented public's need for U.S. recognition, however precarious um, that recognition actually is for them. Wonderful. And then in your next chapter, you actually move on to outline a conversation with a woman you had mentioned earlier named Ines. Could you tell us about how you connect her phrases of me consta and dissent to liberal publicity in Tijuana? Yeah, thank you. So Ines, so chapter two centers on Ines, whom I already mentioned, and it sort of zooms in from, you know, the street and like public action um, on the street to one individual 
and her words in one conversation. She just looks really closely at like two excerpts um, from one interview that we had of, you know, many, many, because I lived with her for, for like two years. Um, and, and, and the part, those, those snippets that I focus on, um, I start out with a sort of ethnographic error, right? That is, I address her as someone who might participate in hearsay. I, I ask her, so what's, what's the rumor about these people who are supposed to be sort of the important, important figures in, in Tijuanense society? And, and I ask that without understanding, you know, the pejorative implications for her of that move. So she really responds at length to ward off that interpolation. She responds with this very careful narrative mapping of liberal publicity in Tijuana and told through stories about her past that really sort of flesh liberal publicity out as a life world. It fleshes out the life world of this documented public that I introduced in chapter one. Um, but it also shows, you know, because this is all sort of in response to my very bumbling question, um, it shows how Tijuana's middle-class public also holds hearsay as its denied center. That is, um, exercising hearsay, making clear that that is not an acceptable mode of communication. That becomes the very reason for speaking this liberal middle-class world into existence. So we got to start in, in, in um, chapter two, just sort of goes deeper into how these two publics are dialogically locked together in this unequal power-laden relation of denial and disavowal. So you asked about Meconsta and Sedice specifically. These are little tags that emerge from this interview with Inés and that come to emblematize the sensibilities underpinning the two publics, as, as well as actually being able to cue them in practice and evoke them. So me consta means I vouch for it, right? I stand behind this. It marks and performs the upstanding I that should stand behind public communication. Se dice means, on the other hand, it's one of these tags that I mentioned earlier. It means literally it's said. It is said that, da-da-da. And, and though it has other uses, for instance, it can very much be used to distance oneself from what is one, one is repeating. And it works in Tijuana very often in a positive way to place oneself within a broader circulation of discourse that remains unverified and unvouched for because of the political conditions of its enunciation. So within this, this form of hearsay is still very much stigmatized, right? It's a kind of specter or uh, extimate other haunting projects for liberal publicity. But over the course of the book, so we start with the clase media and it's, you know, sort of attempts to stamp out hearsay um, and stamp out the undocumented public. And over the course of the book, we see the hearsay public sort of slowly come into its own as a life world, much as liberal publicity in this chapter appears for Inés as something that, um, for instance, links different realms of experience, right? It links the intimate, it links the domestic, it links that to the private world of social connections, it links it to um, the backstage of formal politics, as well as the sort of front stage of, you know, what everybody sees in the newspapers as political action. And, and this, um, this, this, this life world and that is really key to her sense of self, we eventually come to see the hearsay public sort of 
in, in parallel, parallels really underpinning a broad, broad sensibilities and a broad kind of mapping of different forms of sociability. And then you continue to deepen this insight in your next chapter. How did you see the, these logics at play in the assembly plant that you described? Assembly plant, um, the assembly plant's an interesting place. I only did a very short stint of research there. And it actually comes up not in a full chapter, um, but in a little ethnographic excursus that helps draw together the insights from the first two chapters. So one, like how Tijuana's documented public is both invested in liberal publicity and two, how it's dependent also on U.S. state recognition of the individual in the form of a visa. So this is just a little um, short, as I say, I think I call it an insert. Um, it looks at a, a sort of banter session <laughs> that I was privy to between the plant manager and some of uh, the engineers, so all the professionals working in the plant. And the manager then, you know, after after this you know, interaction, which they were, you know, going back and forth on which soccer team and this and that, and, you know, who, whether, whether who eats spicier food in Mexico city or in Northern Mexico at the border and the sort of little, you know, yeah, tit for tat. The manager later in our one-on-one -on -one interview, he referred back to that banter session um, as this paradigmatic example of open debate. Right. In which he said people really treat each other as equals and discuss differing opinions respectfully. So he was like, this is this kind of thing, like what you just saw in there, that would never happen in the South. That would never happen in southern Mexico. Um, but it is it is typical here of the Juanense society at the border. And it indeed underlies like the region's economic success. It underlies the economic success of, of the plant. And so at the same time, so he's making that claim, but of course, he's the plant manager, right? So his capacity to have that kind of interaction and his capacity to frame it authoritatively to me, to the anthropologist, that depends on his status. Um, and as actually, as we came to later in the conversation, on his ability to posit himself as an equal to U.S. interlocutors, right? Like myself, um, a practice that is bound up with his legal status, which we also talked about, um, and his having had a visa his entire life, you know, his ability to say, I'm going to make it in Mexico and I don't need to go to the United States, right? Um, of course, he's making, what, 20 times as much, not 20 times, I forget how many times as much, um, as much exactly he makes or he was making than, you know, the line workers in the plant. And so it's, 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 it's sort of, yeah, his commitment to liberal publicity sort of shows up some of the the ironies and the privileges that are necessary to sort of participate in its um, in its life world. In this plant, the same factory or assembly plant, it actually comes back later in the book in a second ethnographic excursus, um, and it's just useful because you can sort of see in in the microcosm of the plant, um, you know, people of really different social standing interacting together. Uh, and in that second excursus, I'm looking at trying to tease out, you know, not just statistically who has and doesn't have a U.S. visa, according to their standing within the plant, um, but how people's attitudes towards the visa and the visa interview and the U.S. state actually really differ. Um, so those attitudes do split broadly by socioeconomic status. Uh, in the plant, they split between what's called support, that is all of the office workers, and the and production, which is the, the line workers. 
And, and it's those attitudes and relations with the U.S. state more than actually having or not having authorized access, actually having or not having the visa um, that undergird Tijuana's two publics. Okay, then, then you follow that chapter up with a closer examination of the class of media itself as a performative project, sometimes at odds with reality. Can you elaborate a bit on how you use passing to describe this? So I wouldn't say, I wouldn't, I guess I wouldn't say like at odds with reality. Um, to, it's, it's, it's a matter, I think, of how the performative nature of self-presentation actually makes itself felt, right? How that's sharper for some people um, and sharper under certain circumstances. So, you know, a lot of the time, like in the U.S., we have this really strong ideology about like, be yourself, right? And we feel like that's the natural state of things that we should all be striving for is to be ourselves, right? But in fact, we're always performing, you know, we're always trying to mold how others see us. Um, we're trying to craft our different performances into a coherent, uh, recognizable self, right? And so the thing about Tijuana is when you're subjected, you know, for the documented public, when you're subjected to the kind of intense stigmatizing scrutiny that the U.S. puts out constantly, and that tends to hollow out these projects of selfhood on which liberal publicity really rests, right? This upstanding eye that I mentioned before that stands behind its words, that has opinions, that vouches for its communications. So chapter three uh, focuses on, on that process of sort of undoing of uh, it focuses again on Ines and her daughter, Lara, and and it starts to play up passing as a pun. Right. For So for middle class people and um, crossing the border in authorized fashion, obtaining the recognition of the U.S. state can involve this uncomfortable process of becoming aware of how one is presenting oneself and how that might or might not match up with what one feels oneself to be. So self-doubt crops up and um, that provokes different reactive moments, right? So you start to feel that you're passing yourself off at something that you're not. Um, it's not so much that you are or you aren't. It's, it's, I'm interested in how that feeling emerges. And, and, and when that feeling emerges, it provokes different kinds of reactions. So on the one hand, you might cling all the harder to your status, right? It, but I also found that these same people were, you know, totally invested in being good Mexican citizens, good middle class people, nothing to hide, right? Doing everything right. I found them at points also embracing fictionality, embracing the sense of malleability of the self that is also a hallmark of Tijuana as a city of upward mobility of, you know, quote unquote, the American dream within Mexico. And this place that has, you know, historically had, you know, amongst the highest wages in the country, the lowest rate of unemployment and sort of like what that means for projects of self-making and is, 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 is um, really important, you know, in terms of for how the project of liberal publicity and this, you know, fetish really of the autonomous liberal eye, um, it, it, it sort of boosts them but it also creates the conditions for them to crumble and transform from the inside out. And that process of crumbling, um, of sort of deliberate and often very, you know, enjoyable <laughs> hollowing out and playful um, hollowing out of what I is, uh, that anticipates the forms of subjectivity or rather of non-subjectivity uh, that the hearsay public tends to dwell on uh, and dwell in. So then... Speaking about the hearsay public, you move on in that in the next uh, chapter to describe it in greater depth. 
how does the subject position fit within those that you describe in earlier in earlier chapters? So in chapter four, yeah, so chapter four precisely, it just sort of continues this slide. And um, was what I said at the beginning about how the, the Glacia Media and the Pueblo, they both, they face off really intensely, but they also intertwine in the sense that they're not totally distinct, right? There's this intense ideological opposition between them um, with these really firm gestures of negation. And, but in practice, the boundaries can also be quite fluid, right? Because individuals can change their stance from moment to moment. Um, and they can move from evoking and placing themselves within one public um, or the other. So this is a really important point, right? The, the, the two publics, um, they articulate objective social differences, right? They articulate real differences of socioeconomic class, of legal standing, but they're not groups with fixed memberships, right? They're performative entities, and the restrictions on them are the conditions for pulling off a performance and securing recognition through it, right? Before this person, before that person, before this audience, before that audience. Um, so chapter four centers on this one very odd figure who, who, who was useful in terms of showing up that weird malleability um, or that weird lability. And that is Gerardo. So he is, Gerardo is an older man. He's clearly wealthy. He lives in the United States and he crosses daily into Tijuana to manage his factory, which is very small. It's very, very modest. It had like two workers when I when I, when I visited, um, but it is still his factory. And he's a member of the business community. And he's a member of the country club where he invited me. And it was at the country club that it became painfully obvious that his projects of upward mobility did not translate into acceptance. So Gerardo is, after all, you know, even, you know, as an older man, he is, after all, someone who arrived in Tijuana as a kid from the South, penniless. He worked washing cars. He could, you know, this and that and the other. Finally got a job as a welder in the United States. So he has where he got to where he is at, you know, through this whole sort of bootstrap kind of narrative uh, or trajectory. And so it was in the country club then where he sort of seemed to have... Um, you know, he, he, he would, you know, you could think of that as his, you know, trying to show off to me what he'd attained. But it was in the country club that he really sort of turned our relationship and his, our conversation inside out. So he shifted, um, you know, completely away from occupying this role that he had been in our previous interviews. Uh, this role as an expert on border issues and an expert on the economy and all of these kinds of things. And he turned our interaction into this illicit act of passing, of sort of peering into the lives of the elite, transgressing their spaces, revealing their secrets. So he turned our interaction into a full-on performance of hearsay and actually really, you know, totally counterintuitively validation of the hearsay public's imaginary of Tijuana, right, as a working class city made of migrants and not just made of migrants, but made out of the circulation of narrative amongst migrant strangers on the street, the passing on um, of what one might learn, for instance, by working for the powerful, by being their servants, by overhearing their private communications and carrying news of their doings out and propagating it amongst one's peers. So this is, you know, with Gerardo, he's, you know, sort of the last person you'd imagine um, sort of voicing this kind of, this kind of life world. Um, but it's through him that, that I, we sort of get really the first full picture of hearsay in its positive mode, right? As a tool of solidarity, 
um, amongst working people and as an active response to the social, political, and economic conditions of domination um, that they have to contend with, uh, not only in relation to the United States, but within Mexico as well. Wonderful. You then you then start the second part of the book with a deeper analysis of how the imaginaries of the pueblo and the clase media embody different stances towards the law. Can you describe how some of these interactions were on display? So, um, so this loops back to you know I, I spoke only earlier a little bit about the U.S. visa um, and people's attitudes towards it. And so for the clase media, the visa is this really important confirmation of status. It acts as this kind of crowning achievement of your efforts at upward mobility, this kind of seal of approval that you really have transformed yourself. Um, but of course, as I noted, like you don't have to take the visa that way, and many people don't. Um, so even if you don't actually lie or present fake evidence of employment or something like that in your visa interview, you can approach the whole thing um, as a kind of game, right? Where in, in the sense of you're like trying to game the system, you could say, well, you know, I thought quick on my feet and I gave the right answers. And the visa really sort of indicates that, not <laughs> indicates that I'm a really, you know, good middle-class citizen. Um, so chapter five puts those sort of subtler gestures of turning away from the law as an absolute fount of social legitimacy and authority. It, it puts those little gestures into a conceptual framework to help track them ethnographically. And not just, again, not just in relation to the U.S. state, but in relation also to the Mexican state. So what's at stake here is the two public's relation to state authority. Um, and I'm arguing that the clase media or middle class is really invested in state authority, as you might expect of liberal publicity. Uh, whereas the pueblo uh, tends to break away from that dependence on state re recognition and attempts to claim authority for itself. So to show this contrast, the chapter focuses on discourses around and narratives about petty bribery, right? And how one deals with that. So for example, you know, on the middle class side, you have this sort of concerted pushback against quote unquote corruption, right? Where it's the upstanding eye's duty to actually put the police officer in their place, right? Like remind them, you are a representative of the state uh, and you have an obligation to uphold the law. So Inez, for example, she told me, you know, oh, if an, ever, an officer ever like tries to get a bribe out of her, she'll threaten him. She'll say, you know, what's your badge number? I'm getting on my cell phone right now and I'm reporting you. Um, and this is again, her narrative of what she does. I did not actually have the fortune to see her handle handle the situation in this way. Um, though I did have the chance to see her handle similar situations in, in, in that way. Now, a totally different approach um, would be, you know, to try to negotiate the bribe or get the officer, you know, to drop it by appealing to them as a fellow member of the pueblo who should recognize, you know, recognize that we are equals and act in solidarity. So, so for instance, you know, to say to a cop, man, you know, don't be an asshole. Don't be such an asshole. That la the language of that um, just on its own implies and creates a totally different kind of relationship. Um, that I argue is ultimately based on and reenacts the sensibilities of the hearsay public as the pueblo. So I'm sort of trying to track the hearsay public and the clase media, the public of the clase media, into these, these um, other forms of interaction. Then you follow that chapter with what you describe 
uh, as an economy of recognition. Can you elaborate on this concept for us and tell us what function objects like IDs and business cards serve within it? So chapter six um, places the U.S. visa as one of just one another of a whole series of little tokens that people use to secure passage, not just across the border, but in different contexts in Tijuana. So economy of recognition just refers to the way in which passage, even just, you know, walking down the street really depends on what kind of person you're recognized as being. So um, working class men in often need some kind of ID when they're stopped by the police just because of how they look. And these IDs actually work by showing that there is some higher power that vouches for you. Again, me consta, me consta. Um, whether that is an institution or sometimes an individual, right? As in, um, you know, I talk about one man who explained to me that he shows his boss's business card. These tokens are interesting because they all work through the logic of the fetish. They give you the power to pass and they withhold it in the same gesture. But they don't all run back to support the ultimate authority of the state. Instead, we get the situation in which they start to break away from the state. They start to sort of break down its monopoly on authoritative recognition. And as people approach these tokens, in an instrumental way, like I was saying, you can approach the visa in a more instrumental way, you start to get the suggestion that people can seize the power to pass for themselves. Uh, and this is a generative point at which lawlessness, this sort of turning away from the state as ultimate authority, starts to grow. A suggestion that not everything has to hinge on the state or run through it. Great. Um, you then can follow that chapter up with the description of a genre of ballads called corridos. What kinds of stories are recounted in these songs? And then how do you relate these to the hearsay public that we've talked about? So corridos are really, um, they're an old ballad form that emerged in the 19th century and they're still very popular, but for the last few decades, they've been largely, not entirely, but largely taken over by themes of drug trafficking. So chapter seven looks at them as a major genre um, for the hearsay public, which is criminalized and self-criminalizing, eh, but also articulating a collective subject through genre conventions of hearsay. For instance, one of the songs that I spend a lot of time on this chapter literally starts, se dice, it's said, uh, thus framing itself as just one more repetition, just one more instantiation of the circulation of what everybody already knows. What I'm interested in are the songs in which this process of self-articulation um, of the pueblo as a hearsay public actually eclipses the figure of the trafficker, who otherwise, in a lot of the songs, um, appears as a kind of traditional patron figure, you know, the kind of person who might give you a token that would help you pass, as they literally do, right? Um, for instance, they can give you a password that you can use to get through a checkpoint with a load of um, contraband. So the interesting point here is not um, the mere illegality or contention with the law that corridos can seem and are really obsessed with, um, you know, the sort of attempt to expose the state's illegitimacy, um, expose the state's own illegality. And, but, the, but what I'm interested in is the possibility that the hearsay public can come to, through these songs, come to understand the power to pass as its own and actually claim it as its own. Um, and not as something alienated that can only be had through chains 
of mediating authorities. So the corridos that I'm interested in here are the ones that pose or posit not drugs, but communication as the real contraband. Um, these songs turn the reproduction or performance of the song itself into an illicit transgressive act that nonetheless persists, right? It becomes the affirmation of the existence of the pueblo in the face of a larger social system that would control its communications and by controlling them, stamp out its very existence as a public. And in that gesture, this public then claims to know and speak itself um, the legitimate truth of the whole nation. It's fascinating. And then regarding the final chapter of your book, which we're moving on to, you write that hearsay in Tijuana proliferates gestures of displacement, of the hollowness of eye that amplify and pass on all the abuses, however petty or momentous, that the marginalized face at the border. What is the role of death and loss that you're illustrating in this final chapter? If you think of Mexico as a kind of fetish for the U.S., um, which by you know excising and othering it can help us feel more unitary. Um, you know you can think of the wall as a kind of fetish that ensures that it makes us feel safe, but at the same time it reminds us constantly that we're not safe. Um, so hence it requires this ever renewed investment, and the literal violence that's exercised on the body of the migrant is um, is only the most extreme form of that of that investment. So it's sort of something that grows out of the dynamics of the fetish. And this is the threat, the sort of ultimate form of threat under which the hearsay public lives, right? And under which it insists on speaking the truth of what it means to be undocumented. It's a sort of culmination or symbolic culmination of all the different threats and excisions and expulsions that this public is subject to in Mexico as well. So the question, um, how do you speak from a place of recognition of that threat? Um, how do you speak from a place of this ultimate and literal form of denial of subjectivity that killing is? How do you build solidarity with the dead? How do you bear and live ethically in face of the death of others and your own survival? So that's a sort of ethical quandary for the hearsay public that the hearsay public is um, very much working through. Mm, and this chapter... Um, this chapter focuses again, like zooms in again on a single interview with a woman I call Mrs. E, uh, who has not herself been an undocumented migrant to the United States, but whose whole life narrative is shaped by proximity to death in unauthorized border crossing. So she uses her experience of hearing about that, of encountering a bereaved mother, you know, on the bus to frame what coming to Tijuana has actually meant for her. So she articulates her own losses, her personal losses, by connecting them to Tijuana's hearsay public as a space that circulates and makes collective this emergency of death and harm that is the border. So the hearsay public becomes her way of dwelling in her own loss. And it's through that narrative practice that she opens in the interview um, it's through that narrative practice that she poses for us as her listeners this question of ethical response that I think animates the hearsay public as a whole and that really poses a challenge to all of us to remake the basic forms of collectivity that our societies are based on. That's a very powerful chapter too. So, so uh, maybe we can conclude with you telling us a little bit about what you're working on now. Sure. Um, so a couple things. Um, 
So I was actually, I was living in Mexico. I was working in Mexico for the last um, nine years. And I only moved back to the United States about six months before the pandemic hit. Um, so <laughs> it's been an odd return. Um, but it has opened some, it, it didn't open all the possibilities that I hoped for, I guess, because of the pandemic. Um, because I've been, you know, observing lot being staying locked up in my house. Um, but 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 it has it did give me the opportunity to start working on um, a collaboration. I've gotten involved this year in a collaboration with um, David Morrison Portillo on his border looping project. And this this sort of delves into the contradictions of authorized passage um, and whether or not those contradictions can be made. And this is my interest in the project, whether or not those contradictions can be made into a site of connection between authorized and unauthorized, rather than passage being a form of distinction and separation, as I argue um, it is in the book. So basically, border looping is a kind of protest slash performance project in which David crosses the border over and over again without stopping for basically as long as he can take. And, and he does this at night. So... <coughs> There isn't any line and he can go through actually and say like six hours, five or six hours that he does it in a row. He can go through maybe like 20 times in a row, 20 sometimes in a row. And the objective here is precisely to engage the officers in the port of entry. We've been working on documenting what happens in those moments of engagement. Um, and we've been writing together about it. So yesterday we actually just had um, a book launch for um, for this short sort of um, essay that Taller California, which is an in independent um, press that does hand-printed art books, and they put out a version of our, they put out an edition of, of this essay we've been working on. So I'm very um, excited about that and just learning, you know, from these sort of new collaborations, just, you know, thinking about like other forms of communication that anthropology can take. That's fascinating work. Rihan, thank you so much for writing your wonderful book and taking the time to discuss it with us today. No, on the contrary. Thank you.